This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Both Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh were in Toronto this past week to talk about back to school during COVID-19. On Wednesday, the PM was at a public school near Jane and Finch to announce $2 billion in funding to help further protect students as they go back to school. The NDP leader, meantime, wants to make sure that money goes directly to schools, as Jagmeet Singh told Zoomer Radio's Fight Back with Libby Snymer in a conversation which spanned a number of topics. Well, I think that it's absolutely clear that the jurisdiction is, is provincial, but what we know is that parents and education experts are making it really clear that money should go towards small classroom sizes. So the federal government should make sure that the money actually goes to making schools safer and that the money is tied directly to the safety of kids and that experts are the ones that are helping to guide that decision and what they're asking for is smaller classroom sizes. Do you think that there's this stand might have anything to do with the fact that, say, here in Ontario, uh, the Liberal government is getting along very well with the uh, progressive conservative Doug Ford government? He said he's not even going to be campaigning for, for the new leader of the Conservative Party in the next election. Do you think that has one has something to do with the other? Uh, I'm not sure the reason, but, but I can say that families have been worried about their kids going back to school for months. And we've been saying that the federal government should play a role in providing providing funding to help provinces make sure schools are safer. The premier here in Ontario, Premier Ford, has not put a plan together that's not based on science to make sure kids are safe. Parents are still worried. And so that's why we've been saying what should happen here is the federal government should make sure the money is tied to making schools safer. And what parents and experts are saying, the major way to make schools safer would be to have smaller classroom sizes. Turning to uh, other things, uh, the Conservative Party just elected a new leader a couple of days ago. Uh, what's your take on Aaron O'Toole? Well, what I've said about the, the Conservative leadership is that no matter who the leader is, what we've seen from Conservatives is a, it's a clear pattern where they believe the path forward is to cut the programs that people rely on. And with Aaron O'Toole in particular, Prime Minister Harper massively cut health care, and we're in a pandemic and we're hurting because of those cuts. At the, around the table, the cabinet table, when that decision was made, Aaron O'Toole was a, Aaron O'Toole was a minister. So he was there and supported the decision to cut healthcare funding, a decision that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau did not reverse. Those same cuts continued. And we're in a pandemic faced with some serious healthcare shortages and lack of access. And that's directly a result of the cuts brought in by Prime Minister Harper with Minister O'Toole at the table and Prime Minister Trudeau that continued those cuts. So, that's not the response I think Canadians want to see. They want to see investments in healthcare and investments in programs to help people out. Given that you're supporting the government, how do you differentiate yourself? And uh, what do you think about the prospect of a fall election? Do you think that's something that might happen? 
Well, with with the decision around what should happen moving forward, you know, our focus is not on whether we should have an election or not. Our focus is on how do we get help to people in a pandemic. So, given the crisis, given the challenges, our focus has always been throughout this pandemic and even now, how can we make sure people get the help they need? And if the Liberal government continues to fall down a path where they're just helping themselves and infighting and it hurts people, we'll look at all options. But right now, our focus is how can we continue to fight for people? And throughout this pandemic, it is the work that we've done as a team, as New Democrats, we have fought to make the response uh, a more compassionate and inclusive response. The difference between us and the Liberals is the Liberals are willing to leave people behind. And we fought to include people. We fought to include students and seniors, people living with disabilities. All of those gains were things that we fought for. And we were able to have the Liberals support us in putting those forward. So if we can continue to get those wins for people, we're going to continue to do that. The response to COVID-19 has included more people because of us. And, and we can show that. And I'm hoping that at the end of the day, Canadians know that no matter what happens, they can count on me as leader and us as New Democrats to fight for them. We are just focused with laser-like precision around what is going to be in the best interest of people, what do they need, and how can we fight to get it. Federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh in conversation with Libby Snymer on Wednesday. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. How will the return to school affect Zoomers? We've already discussed on Fight Back the possible impact on the ability to stay in a social bubble with children and grandchildren. But what about their careers? Fight Back has anecdotal evidence that more teachers are retiring this year because of the pandemic. And that's likely happening across other professions as well. To discuss, Libby spoke with our own demographic guru, who is also the father of a teacher, David Kravitz, vice president of Zoomer Media and chief marketing officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. In an average year, just to get you some benchmarks, so there's 128,000 teachers in Ontario, elementary and secondary, about 4,500 retire in an average year. It's true that more are going to retire this year. I think it's partly COVID, but I also think that the response to COVID has created an environment where it's very difficult for the teachers to pin down exactly what's going to happen. Uh, Each school is a little bit different. The instructions about class sizes and um, safety measures were late and very fragmented. So there's a lot of uncertainty how is it going to work? How many kids are in my class? I Most of the time, they don't even know how many kids are in the class yet. And a huge number of teachers have not yet had their employment confirmed. And there's talk about adding more, you know, substitute teachers and occasional teachers. And if you want to talk about health risks from that, of a teacher going to multiple schools during the course of a week, that hasn't even been discussed yet. There's a lot of anxiety about that because I'm moving from environment to environment and who knows how safe each school is. So it's, you know, frankly, it's a bit of a hot mess. And I, I don't know, you know, how they could have handled it better, but it is certainly exacerbating this idea that maybe this is the year I should pack it in. And then I know you're going to want to talk about this. We have the whole other phenomena, but would I be safer collecting a fee for teaching a, a private pod? Because that's also becoming a little cottage industry well, in the middle it- of all this. 
what are the implications of this for the Zoomer generation? I mean, are, are, are a lot of people in a position where really they're going to be leaving the workforce sooner than they want to? Well, yes and no. So there's, there's really, um, and again, I, this is another one of these topics, and we've seen it before with other topics, where the cohort is so huge, the, the sheer number of people, that a number of different scenarios coexist. So scenario one is, no, it's going to actually delay retirement because people's portfolios took a hit and they've got to keep working. They've got to keep the money coming in. There's some evidence for that. And we know already, even without COVID, that the the baby boomer, or the older part of the Zoomer cohort is staying in the labor force longer than anybody in you know previous generations. We now in teaching you know, which we started with, is they've always had um, a larger-than-average group retiring because their pension plan is very rewarding compared to many others. And uh, you can actually retire, you know, in your 50s, depending on how long you've been teaching, and get a, a you know, all of your best, uh, the average of your best five years, and they reach this friction point, you know, is it worth it for me to work one more year um, where I could get, you know, maybe three-quarters of what I used to get paid without working. And my daughter, actually, uh, she, we were talking about this, and she says she knew numerous people that this is the year I'm finally going to retire, and then they kind of don't, and then they kind of finally do. So the retirement rate for teachers is a little higher than the average population. But that's another factor is how good is your pension. So if I can make 51000 for not teaching, I'm taking a $30,000 hit, but then again, I'm retired, but I'm, I'm only 53 in their example. You know, I only need to bring in 30 grand more to make what I was making full-time teaching. Then that second job becomes quite possible. And now look at COVID. Um, maybe I'll teach a pod. Maybe I'll become a tutor. Maybe I'll uh, do online coaching. Um, there's a whole bunch of education-related um, occupations that are opening up as a result of COVID and Zoom and that whole phenomenon. Do you see this as a kind of uh, dangerous trend for the demographic or, you know, stuff happens? I think, I think if I look at the demographic as a whole, I'd say stuff happens and uh, boomers and Zoomers are very resilient and very adaptive. And I think more people are going to be gravitating towards finding the opportunity than uh, fleeing in terror. David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media and Chief Marketing Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. There are some promising developments in the race for a vaccine against COVID-19, especially for Zoomers. Researchers at Moderna report their experimental vaccine appears to work well in older people, the population most at risk for severe disease related to the new coronavirus. Moderna scientists say the immune responses in those between the ages of 56 and 70, above age 70, and those 18 to 55 were similar. And this is just one of seven vaccines that are already in the final phase of clinical trials. But the question is, will Canadians have access once one or all are proven to be safe? 
Dr. Amir Adaran is making the case that the Trudeau liberals in Ottawa have bungled the procurement and failed to lock down orders of these vaccines while our closest allies have done so. Dr. Adaran is a professor at the University of Ottawa. He joined Libby Snymer on Thursday. It's a good news, bad news story. The good news is scientific in that COVID was discovered in the last days of 2019. It's now August, barely eight months on, and we have seven vaccine candidates in the final stage of testing. If they pass this final stage, they become approved vaccines available to people around the world, which is stunning progress to have not just one or two, but seven vaccines developed in under a year. And I fully expect at least one of those vaccines will cross the finish line before winter is over. Wow. So that's that's unbelievable. Science has never managed to pull it off as quickly as that. And, and science has done it without cutting corners at all, just by shrinking the timeline. The bad news is political. With all these vaccines likely to be reaching the finish line, some successfully and perhaps some not successfully, countries have to begin planning how they're going to lay their hands on a supply of vaccine to immunize their populations. And many countries have done an exceptional job of that. The United States, the United Kingdom, the 27 countries of the European Union, Australia, all of them, our closest allies, have purchased vaccines already. They have placed orders for what is coming in the expectation that it will pass clinical trials at the last stage. They're getting in line. They're paying up now. So they get the first deliveries. There's only one country in North America and Western Europe that has not done that. And that's ours. You know, you've got to wonder why. It's not like the Liberal government is hesitant about spending money on this. And and uh, I think a lot of our audience, just from what we've been hearing from the Prime Minister and other cabinet ministers, were probably under the impression that we did have this under control. Well, the government has not planned well. That is clear. And just as it was caught with its trousers around its ankles over not having enough PPE uh, in March and April. Um, now we're in a similar position with vaccines because we have not made the advance purchase that other countries have, nor have we taken steps to manufacture those vaccines under license in Canadian facilities, which would be an alternative to buying it from the source. We've done neither in this country. And, other and that co- really does place us in a class of one. Uh, it's just poor planning. Other countries have received licenses, correct? That's right. So if you take the example of the vaccine invented at Oxford University, and I'll make a disclosure, my, my PhD is from Oxford, but that's not the reason I'm about to say this. If, if you take a look at that vaccine, it was the very first um, to generate interesting results. It's now in the third phase. And because of the head start it had, it's likely to be the first vaccine out of phase three and 
hopefully, across the finish line with a positive outcome. With the Oxford vaccine now being manufactured by AstraZeneca, the problem is AstraZeneca can manufacture only so much in their facilities. So they have chosen to license production to others just to expand how much could be made. They've granted licenses to Australia, to Japan, even to Brazil and India, developing countries. And yet in Canada, we haven't yet reached a licensing agreement with AstraZeneca, nor is it clear that we will. Um, and that is entirely due to uh, really lethargy, slowness on the part of the federal government. The only way out that I see is for Canada to approach the vaccine manufacturers and seek a license to make their products here. And as I mentioned, that's something Brazil has done, India has done, Australia, Japan. We have the facilities, we could do it, but that so far has not happened. Epidemiologist Dr. Amir Adaran at the University of Ottawa. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Now we turn to an unexpected and uncomfortable side effect of the precautions most of us are taking to avoid COVID-19. Dry eye is on the rise as a result of wearing a mask. It even has its own name, mask-associated dry eye or MAID. So what exactly is this and why is it happening and what can we do about it? Dr. Richard Maharaj is an optometrist and member of the Ontario Association of Optometrists. He spoke with Libby about the condition on Tuesday. I had noticed that during the shutdown, uh, when we were closed physically, we had a lot of patients calling in through telemedicine complaining about their dry, irritated eyes. And uh, it took me a, a while until I had one patient come in where uh, her eyes were so significantly red, I was concerned that she had an ulcer on the eye. And in fact, when I, she came in, I noticed this pattern of uh, dryness on her eye that was consistent with the angle at which the air was entering her eye from her mask. Uh, and so, sure enough, I saw this repeatedly, and uh, um, at some point in June, a colleague of mine in the States had, uh, had made the same assumption, uh, and we came up with um, uh, this sort of final analysis that the air coming from the mask being blown back into the eye is actually exacerbating and making dryness worse. Most people are probably familiar right now with the experience of your glasses getting fogged up, yeah. and that is because the air is kind of coming up through uh, the area around your nose. So the best thing to do, number one, is to try to seal it as much as possible. Short of that, the next step would be in actually providing some type of sealant there by using tape on that area. So in my clinic, I will tape the bridge of my mask so that there's no air transfer back towards my eyes, and that helps to alleviate some of it. It doesn't take care of it completely, but it does help to alleviate that. The other thing that's important to do, though, knowing that this air transfer to the eye is causing these symptoms is to also bolster your tear film. So make your tears thicker by adding lubricants to the eyes uh, in advance. So I would recommend using like a non-preserved artificial tear on a regular basis. You know, we brush our teeth every day. It makes sense at this point because most people are wearing masks to lubricate the eyes more regularly every day. What's interesting about this uh, mask-associated dry eye is that it's not just affecting people that had dry eye before but it's taking people that might have been sort of borderline or didn't know they had it to revealing the disease that was underlying the whole time. 
is it all older people or do, is this affecting people of all ages? People of all ages. I mean, I like to think of myself as young, but I'm 43 and I've had drive for many years. But this particular period of time, the last uh, several months has been has been difficult for both me and my patients. So this is not just a, a, a condition or an observa- observation of the age. This, uh, this is affecting everybody. And the more screen time you have, you know, when we binge watch, when we're on a PC, we're actually not blinking as often. So that also increases the exposure. If you think about it, when your eyelids close, that's actually when our eyes and our tears actually heal. So if our eyes are open in a normal state, that's when the tear is supposed to do its job. But if we now have air that's blowing in there and drying those tears out, well, there you have your problem. In terms of how common it is, right now, it's, it's actually very pervasive. I mean, if you're wearing a mask, you're, that blowback is happening regardless. Now, the question is, you know, how many people um, that have this condition actually know about it? I would say, in general, dry eye affects approximately one in three Canadians. Um, so assuming that number, you know, that's, that kind of gives you a rough idea. One in three adult Canadians have dry eye. Mask-associated dry eye, that number is going to climb. Um, in terms of the awareness, it's, it's something that we're... Uh, we're learning about as each day goes by, much like COVID itself, we learn newer, newer and newer facets of it. So awareness is on the rise. I mean, programs like yours and, and uh, outreach from um, the Center of Ocular Research uh, and Education at the University of Waterloo are, are doing as much as we can to educate our patients and to educate our peers on this, 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 this condition. It'll be interesting to see, you know, years from now, if we've actually increased the prevalence or the amount of patients with dry disease because of this. Dr. Richard Maharaj is an optometrist and member of the Ontario Association of Optometrists. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of the best calls of this past week. Bob in Etobicoke phoned with his perspective on back to school. I think that they should keep the schools closed until after the Christmas holiday for a number of reasons. One is that there's not maybe no daycare for mothers for for their kids that have to stay home. So I would close the schools till then, maybe put some online education together, and I would probably lay off the teachers instead for that period of time because uh, they, it's getting to be the money that they have to put out to put the kids in the school for this three months. It's only three months. It's maybe needed for, for other things, like putting the ventilation and, and systems into the nursing homes. We cannot spend all of our money on education. And when you go to a store and a students who graduated in the last two or three years can't even make change when you're, when you're buying something, there's something wrong with the system, but I would close the schools until Christmas time. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Michael, who phoned from the road with his take on what he sees as a mess around back to school during COVID-19. I think we've been sadly let down by teachers' unions, boards of education, and the teachers themselves in in a matter of uh, implementing back-to-school policies and procedures. They've known about this and <clears throat> pandemic since March. 
what did they meet and come up with in March? Nothing. How about April? Nothing. May? Nothing. June? Nothing. And then finally they started to wake up to the fact that, hey, the kids are probably going to go back to school in September. What are we going to do about it? Well, they came up with nothing. And I suppose to shield their embarrassment over the fact that they just aren't performing in a professional manner, they're trying to stick the government with blame on, on for this. Oh, the government's to blame for all of this. Oh, the Ministry of Labor hasn't acted on uh, implementing ASHRAE ventilation recommendations. It's just the teachers, the unions, the boards are all covering themselves up. They sat at home drawing full salaries all during the pandemic, and now they're crying the blues. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and have your say anytime on our Fightback voicemail at 416-367-9636. That's 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.